Hi everyone, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Keep in mind that this was recorded before Alex Jones was finally booted off Twitter, so I just wanted to mention that, and also wanted to pop in and say thank you to the new patrons who signed up last month, and all the lovely patrons who generally keep the show going. Every month, patrons come and go, so it's listeners like you that make this possible. It's important to get new patrons to replace those that leave so the show can have some breathing room. And I'm also just a few patrons away from hitting my 250 patron mark. Once we hit that, I'll be doing a second patron AMA. Help me get there by signing up on Patreon and participate in the upcoming AMA. I know thousands listen to the show, but only a very small fraction of people actually support it. If you could toss a couple of bucks into the old Patreon, it would help more than you know. Now, on to the episode. Make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. Oh, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to conversations with your lovable never pisses anyone off ex-muslim host Ina keeping it non-controversial hello everyone welcome to episode 51 with Chris Droop ex-evangelical activist and writer created the viral hashtag you may have heard of empty the pews How's it going, Chris? I'm doing all right, thanks, Ina. How are you? I am very well. It's the first day back after Labor Day long weekend, and Mm -hmm. it's nice to uh, chat with you this morning. Thanks. Yeah, I've been looking forward to chatting with you. It's been fun to connect on Twitter. Definitely, definitely. You're one of the few people that are like, you know, secularist and also not like going down this strange path that we'll get into discussing, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'd say the same thing about you. Of course, um, some people in secularist or atheist communities, which of course don't exist. uh, Of course they don't exist, because (laughs) if they don't exist, you can't criticize them. They find me too religious for them, but then there are religious people who find me too secularist, and I do I do weird things that probably you know confuse some people on both sides. But I'm just doing my thing. Yeah. <laughs> so are are you still religious? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I I'm not. I'm definitely not religious. I consider myself a non-religious agnostic, but in as much as I'm committed to working with uh, progressive religious groups, you know, and progressive Christians and interfaith coalitions, um, I've, I've encountered many people in the non-existent atheist community who find that troubling and not something that they approve of. And I've even uh, written content for a devotional app. Oh, really? <laughs> and it was put in, this is very recent, and it was put in the... Um, spiritual but definitely not religious category and I kind of wanted to quibble a little bit about the term spiritual but um, it's the Our Bible app it was created by Crystal Cheatham and uh, I wrote a 10 day series of secular meditations for the deconstructing and reconstructing where I took my usual position that you know uh, that we take I, I think the, the most prominent representatives anyway of the evangelical community take this position that those of us who come out of a toxic religious background 
um, those of us who come out of evangelicalism in this sense, but many of us connect with wider sort of ex-fundamentalist communities as yeah. well. Um, we have a lot in common and we have a lot of things to unpack. And uh, so I try not to hammer too hard on the anti-religious stuff. You know, I try to validate all paths out of toxic religion, whether that lands you in a healthy form of religion or outside religion altogether. Yeah. Um, I've talked to Ryan Bell about that. And yeah, and I was just on Crystal Cheatham's podcast as well. Um, Is it like a Christian podcast? Sort of. She, she, she's awesome. She builds it as a podcast about, uh, let's see, God, the Bible, and sex, I think is the way that she puts it. But there's a lot of sex in there. Um, It's pretty great. It's very, it's a very queer podcast. Um, She's a really fun, smart person. She created this app. She told me that she uh, now regrets that she called it the Our Bible app because she'd like it to be more inclusive than that. Yeah. And, you know, the people who write for it, it's mostly people from marginalized groups, a lot of uh, women of color, and um, they write very inclusive sort of devotionals. And some of them really still find a lot of inspiration um, in, the, in the Bible. And she wanted to make this app because pretty much all devotional literature out there, for the most part, is made for white conservative Christians. I mean, in the Christian tradition. Right. And, um, and she wanted to challenge that. So, yeah, on her podcast, which is called Lord Have Mercy, uh, she pushed me a bit on, <laughs> am, am I a spiritual person? And I said, well, if you define that without reference to metaphysics, if we can bracket that entirely, but if you mean, am I searching for meaning and do I want to dive into to values and try to discover things about being human and make something meaningful out of that, then yes, you could call me a spiritual person, but uh-huh. you know, skip the woo, skip the, yeah. meta- skip the metaphysical dogma. Yeah. And, and I do think that that approach is necessary in some situations. So I'm glad there's people like you that are sort of okaying, uh, maybe a path from within that framework for people to become less and less attached to their, Uh, dogmatic ways of practicing religion, right? Uh, I never understood the all-or-nothing approach, even in my most heightened new atheist days. Like, I'm happy to speak with progressive theists and ally Mm. with them when we have the same values. Or I do have some issues with, like, people (laughs) that, like, reinterpret scripture in a progressive way and just say that every other interpretation is wrong. It's, like, it's fine if you're doing that for yourself or you want to have, like, a more queer-friendly interpretation. But to Mm -hmm. say that um, everyone else has been wrong throughout the ages to interpret this as homophobic, it's just been misunderstood. I find like a bit gaslighty and it really frustrates me when people do that. I agree with you there. I mean, um, and I'm thinking of it more with respect to the Bible than the Quran, which I know much less well, though I did read an English translation or uh, interpretation as Muslims would insist. You, may, um, you read the whole thing? Yeah, I read it through. Wow. Uh, good for you. Was, Boring, huh? Was, <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't the most interesting reading I'd ever done, but there were some interesting things in there. And this was probably about going on 20 years ago. And I have, uh, you know, not read the whole thing again since or dipped into it much. <laughs> um, Can't blame but, but you. I felt like I should. 
you know, and when it comes to the Bible, uh, yeah, I also press people all the time when they insist that, say, Trump-supporting Christians are just fake Christians or right-wing readings of the yeah. text are just, are just wrong. Um, it's the you know, same I, thing I, with ISIS and Islamists, right? It's like trying to shift the blame elsewhere. This is not Islam. This is not... Well, no, there's so many ways to interpret Islam, and if you start saying one interpretation is right and everything else is wrong, then you're acting like the fundamentalists. Right, then we're getting into theology, and uh, that's, I think, ultimately going to be a fruitless debate, right? Because when people disagree yeah. in theology, there's no outside ar arbitrator. <laughs> well, God it's, ain't coming down. Oh, hey, this is, the right, yeah. this is the right interpretation after all. Everyone else, go home. I mean, you know, if, if it were so obvious that there's one objective, true interpretation of religious texts that are used as the basis for religious communities, and the interpretation is always historically and sociologically and communally mediated, you know, if there were just one objective reading, um, then why do we have all these numerous divisions in both Islam and Christianity right. and Judaism and, you know, any text-based religion has right. fractured and fractured and fractured because, you know what, they're not fucking straightforward texts. <laughs> right. I mean... Even texts from people that are still around, like people will interpret articles like in so many different ways. And uh, certain writers will kind of want to be saying something, but then when they get called on it, they'll be like, no, 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 that's not what I meant, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. even though they're still around, there's a lot of confusion around those texts. So why wouldn't there be confusion around you know, texts that are over a thousand years old, with a morality from so long ago, trying to fit it into today is no easy task. And if you just say that everyone else is wrong and you're really um, moderate and 21st century version is the one that was always meant to be, it's just, it seems like a dick move to me. <laughs> I, I agree. It's totally ahistorical. My professional training in the academy is as a historian. Um, I'm not a historian of the ancient world, but nevertheless, I bring my historical training to any kind of text that I read or any kind of yeah. big sort of social phenomenon around it. And so to say that the you know progressive reading is, oh, hey, we finally got it right, is it, just complete nonsense. From yeah, and any similarly, even like the sort of more literalist, uh, atheist, right wing um, people you see will like try to hold Muslims to the most fundamentalist literalist standards and be like, well, no, they can't be a real Muslim if they're gay and so tolerant and whatever, whatever. And it's like, mm -hmm. this sounds so familiar, but you can't decide for other people. Right. And so I'm also, you know, all for um, these kinds of text-based religions or certain communities and groups in them, because it's never going to be all of them evolving and coming up with a more progressive translation, or not translation, interpretation of it. You know, well, sometimes translations too do have their ideological overtones, but that's a different thing. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's great, but um, people from both you know from both sides should not insist that that's the only thing that qualifies as real Christianity or real Islam because that's simply sociological, historical, and anthropological nonsense. Right. It's, it's, and it's really unhelpful, and I think it's often you know, damaging to people who come out of toxic versions of these faiths. And, you know, I feel erased when people say that Trump-supporting Christians are fake Christians. And so one of my most controversial blog posts is precisely about that, and one of the most widely read, you know, it's called, the, About Those Trump Voters for God, Stop Calling Them Fake Christians.
Yeah. Um, so I push that button when I get the progressive Christians getting defensive or Christians who want to present themselves as progressive, even if they're not getting defensive and doing not all Christians. Yeah. Um, I finally wrote a, a long argued essay response so I could just post a link when that came up because it comes up all the time. Yeah, I'll be sure to link it in the show notes. Um, yeah, and in terms of Islam, like we already have these issues where people exclude certain beliefs like uh, Ahmadis, right? They say these, this is not true Islam and then it becomes murderous from there. So you can't mm-hmm. be playing into that, even as a progressive. You don't want to define what's true and what's not true because you're really just feeding into already that divisiveness. Right, absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, you know, to get back to your point of can we have a conversation with, with progressive believers and, and why that's important, um, I, I do think... We need to we need to do that, but I'll call them out if they insist that their yeah. interpretation is like yeah. the the only one. Yeah, you know? exactly. I think I'm in the same place as you on that. Like I'd be happy to ally with a progressive theist that has my val like my left leaning diversity inclusive feminist values over a right wing anti immigration anti diversity <laughs> atheist any day Mm. you know just because the both of us don't believe in god it doesn't really make us the same at all right and not every conversation that we have with believers has to be a debate i mean some of my favorite conversations are those that i recently had you know with the progressive christian crystal cheatham and i'm writing another 10-day series of secular reflections for her devotional app uh this month yeah she asked me asked me to do it again um, so, you know, she's, she's great to talk to and we can talk about what we disagree about. Um, but we don't have to talk about it all the time because we have plenty of other common ground to, yeah. to, to find and go over, you know, or we can just laugh and joke or we can talk about sex and, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's always something in the back of my mind that bothers me when I have <laughs> these conversations with believers. I'm just like, yeah, but, but this this isn't i mean you know i guess that's the atheist in me right like i am a pretty staunch atheist as much as i you know criticize the movement atheist communities and and leaders um i still i still am like okay you know i love that you are inclusive and lgbt friendly but there's always something where you know, there was a documentary that I saw about Muslim drag queens where they're all already, you know, turned away from their families and their communities. So they understand the hardships each other are going through and it's nice mm-hmm. and they're building mm-hmm. a community. But then they're practicing in a pub like for their show at night. And then one of the people wanted to like just take a break and pray. But one of the other people was like, no, but that's haram. You can't do that. There's alcohol in the premises. And I'm like, yeah, but you, you already know that you guys aren't <laughs> following everything to the T. So why these like little strict little rules again, you know? Mm. So. Yeah. I mean, I see, I see what you're saying. It's hard to and, wrap um, my mind around it sometimes, but sometimes it just doesn't have to go there. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's how it often is with some of the people that I work with most who are progressive Christians and we're able to have good conversations and even uh, just be very frank about having very substantive disagreements yeah. and, bra- and bracketing those and saying, you know, this is what I think and this is what you think. We don't have to always turn it into a debate. Yeah, not, yeah, exactly. Not, not everything has to be a debate all the time. <laughs> Believe me. I mean, I see like <laughs> the random dudes on Twitter like trying to debate random women in hijabs on Twitter like just because they have a hijab in their profile doesn't mean that they're open to debating every atheist douchebag that comes <laughs> along one time that I was speaking a dick move. yeah I was speaking with uh, this one Muslim convert and she's so lovely and accepting of ex-Muslims and she does these interfaith uh, events and I was asking her if she would be open to have hosting Satanists or a Satanist group in a mosque for an interfaith mm. event, right? So she was like, uh, you know, I she, was, she didn't really know what it was. She was thinking about it a bit. But then she came back with, yeah, why not? You know, as someone who didn't know what it was, I... I wasn't so open to it in the beginning, but now that I've read about it a bit, and yeah, why not? And that would have been so cool, so historical, you know, if there was a interfaith <laughs> event in a mosque with a, with a Satanist group. Can you imagine? Like, that'd be the coolest thing. That but, would certainly be, be interesting, yeah. But then this atheist bro came by and uh, was like, you know, why do you have to think about uh, Satanism, like as if your religion is any good or tolerant, and he just started like throwing <laughs> insults at her. Like, oh no, it was just so unnecessary. And I don't think that uh, it went. The conversation went anywhere after that because she's like, oh my gosh, if I interact with Hina, these <laughs> maybe these are the kinds of people that come at me. So, but it was nice to try. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those guys can be really annoying. They just jump into all kinds of random threads and try to start reasonable debates with you that aren't reasonable at all. I know. They're not willing to recognize that they're being rude and they're heavily emotionally invested and they're right to be super rude. And it's called what? Sea lioning, right? It's like, I'm just (laughs) asking a question. Why won't you talk to me? Why? I'm just asking a reasonable question. And you know that no matter what you say, Mm-hmm. It's not going to be accepted as a valid answer. It's like the guys that um, ask you for just one example of Peterson's sexism or misogyny. Just <laughs> show me just one. And it's like and you can show them a hundred, but. Yeah, they'll explain each one away. They'll rationalize each one. Yeah. That's, that's what they do. Whatever evidence you submit is going to be ruled inadmissible. And we all know this in advance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what is the point? This isn't a good thing <laughs> discussion, right? So, um, yeah. I, I have to say, though, to change the topic a little bit, I really admire and uh, envy even how the ex-evangelical community can talk about and criticize harshly their former communities without having their struggle or their, you know, conversation hijacked by um, douchebags that want to hate on Christians as people. You know what I mean? Like, it would. it's kind of like maybe how you might feel in Pakistan as a 
as an ex-Christian trying to criticize Christianity, but anytime you do that, the Islamists come and join in, like, yeah, yeah, Christianity sucks, and you're like, no, 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 not you, you know? I mean, it, it, it does happen, um, but I think it probably, because, um, you know, uh, the people in the non-existent atheist community uh, tend to be hyper-focused on Islam, I'm sure it doesn't oh. happen as, as much. But we, we do get people making totally tone-deaf comments or just kind of like, you know, just kind of spouting off, parroting basic little phrases and talking points about how, you know, all religion is terrible or whatever. Uh, you get you get those in the comments sometimes. And I think we're mostly able to ignore it um, if it's really irrelevant, as it usually is, to the subject that's being discussed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you said, um, atheists try to hold, try to try to insist that the only valid version uh, of Islam is extreme fundamentalist Islamism, and they do the same. They do the same thing with Christianity. It's uh, not just atheists though. With like, say, ex-Muslims, it's like right-wing Christians always trying to hijack our conversation or our struggle, you know, if right. we're critical of Islam, the right wing Christians are like, yeah, yeah, let me put my arms around you. Come over here. <laughs> right. Which is such complete and total bullshit because they would love to be able to get away with, you know, many of the things that they're supposedly criticizing about fundamentalist Muslims. Right. Like they're, they're anti-feminist, they're anti-LGBT, you know, they might not, say that they prescribe wife beating or something like that most of them yeah some actually really might prescribe a form of you know discipline with the man as the um you know head of the family like christ is the head of the church yeah. but um they certainly want to cover up create all kinds of cover for terrible abuses of women and children to happen and they do happen all the time in uh, fundamentalist Christian communities, particularly those that homeschool because we have almost no regulation of homeschooling in this country. Probably still a majority, although it seems like homeschooling has been becoming more popular uh, with with liberals and sort of leftists and, you know, California-type liberals mm -hmm. in, in, recent, in recent years who are all anti-vax and uh -huh. whatever, even killing crystals, oh. so, some of them. Um, or, you know, some of them are really homeschooling for legitimate reasons. American schools are in decline because of, you know, our terrible education policy over the years. Um, but still, I think a majority most likely is done for, uh, fun, is done by fundamentalists who are, are homeschooling their children so that they can totally control their access to information and totally control other aspects of their lives. Um, there are a lot of extreme cases out there that are very well documented. You know, if you look at the website of Homeschoolers Anonymous, for example, uh, cases of parents not even getting their children basic documents like birth certificates and social security cards or withholding those things to control them as adults, denying them access to good education. And most of the curricula have been designed for homeschooling, have been designed by Christian fundamentalists yeah. uh, to propagate Christian reconstructionist, dominionist, views yeah a lot and, of that does not sound too different from like conservative islamic right-wing parents as well you know it's just a difference of what they're allowed to get away with as you were saying they would probably like to get away with more but they just can't yeah absolutely we have a huge child marriage problem in the united states child brides and uh, it's not 
the 1% of the population that is Muslim that is the, the issue here. It's our Christian fundamentalist communities. Uh, it's the people who grew up in Roy Moore type communities that they force their daughters into terrible marriages, sometimes when they're in their teens, early teens even, or even as young as 11 or 12, oh to, to much older men. There have been exposés on this. And, and I mean, um, you saw the support he still got, right? Like, oh, yeah. He got 80, I think over 80% of the white evangelical vote in the Alabama special election for, for Senate to fill Jeff Sessions' seat. Also, there have been, as it came, as you know, there have it has been good reporting about the child marriage problem in the United States, uh, in, in the last couple of years, you know, there have been initiatives in states, um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head which states, either Kentucky or Tennessee, Florida, you know, there have been states that have tried to, um, to put strict legal limits on child marriage. The pushback comes from the Christian right. They don't want that. Yeah. So they really want to have their cake and eat it too. They, they don't want to uh, outlaw child marriage. Um, there's also a huge fundamentalist homeschooling lobby headed up by an organization called uh, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, the HSLDA, which has been very, very effective in mobilizing these homeschooling families as its foot soldiers to um, initially, you know, starting back in the, in the 80s when they started to chip away at this. And I don't think, I'm not sure exactly when HSLDA was founded, but, you know, now it's to to keep homeschooling from being regulated because back then when that general movement toward fundamentalist homeschooling was growing rapidly, a lot of states still did have some pretty robust regulations around homeschooling and those have now been entirely dismantled. Okay. And so and so predictably, and I mean it's state by state, but most states regulate homeschooling almost not at all. And if you don't comply, there's probably nothing's going to happen even with the very minimal regulation that exists. They use fear mongering, you know, actually get the HSLDA's mailing list so I can see what, what they're up to. And um, they, they scare parents into thinking that the government just wants to take your children away. Um, CPS is the enemy. And um, we have to make sure that parents have total freedom, which is a, is a Christian Reconstructionist point of view. I mean, it's really the, the thoroughgoing Christian Reconstructionists still believe that parents should have the right to stone rebellious children. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, I think most of your homeschooling fundamentalist Christian families would not go that far. I'd like to see actually a public opinion poll, but, you know, people don't always tell the truth in those. They you know. don't, yeah. <laughs> but, um, I mean, that is the view of someone like R.J. Rushdoony, who is the, he's dead now, but he's the founder of Christian Reconstructionism, an extreme form of Calvinism. And his views, even if people don't adhere to the whole thing, you know, are, have been very influential and their influence has spread through homeschooling and through Christian schools like the kind that I graduated from. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'd like to hear uh, a bit more about your backstory and how you got to leaving and all of that, if you wouldn't mind getting into it. Sure. Um, so when uh, I was born in far northern Indiana, small town, lived there till I was about four or five years old. My dad was a uh, marching band director back then and then he was just kind of a freelance musician composer arranger wrote some jingles and things for a while but then he became a music pastor and my mom as soon as my sister and i were old enough to go to school um she had gotten a teaching degree she taught 
I think, before I was born for a year or two in public school. But then she went to teach in a Christian school. So I was raised by a music pastor and a Christian school teacher. So what exactly is a music pastor? Oh, well, um, sometimes also called worship leader. It's someone who, uh, you know, coordinates the music in a, in a church service. And um, At least you guys are allowed music. <laughs> I mean, there are there are Christian traditions that don't use musical instruments in, yeah. in the service. Um, but yeah, we eventually got into this kind of so-called seeker-sensitive movement where you try to, try to make church sort of like a rock show to bring people in and you sell them the same yeah. conservative ideology, but in a cool package. You mean like Jordan Peterson? <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> He's the, so, the atheist circuit Christian... You know, he does the the strange events that are, like, considered the rock shows of the IDW now. So that's why it reminded me of him. (laughs) Yeah. um, there. I mean, this is the whole megachurch phenomenon, which is really a thing. And there are a lot of, like, wannabe megachurches. Like the IDW. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, kind of. They might might be smaller churches that... um, you know, also use this aesthetic and this lingo. It's like hipster Christianity, and it's still misogynistic, and yeah, it's still yeah. and it's still homophobic. <laughs> but it's so cool. Look at that band. So. See, at least you can. This, this is what I mean. Like you can talk about this stuff. We have this in Islam too. We have the hipster, like uh, right wing Muslims with the hijabs and stuff. There are, of course, progressive people wearing hijabs as well. Not mm-hmm. the face veils. I, I I can't agree to that. I don't see how anyone progressive would wear a face veil. But hijabs, yes, I've seen all kinds of people wear hijabs for different reasons. But mm-hmm. but ultimately, it's like a modesty garment, you know, based on some very sexist ideas. And it's very hard and getting harder for people like me to just push back against our right wing because the second that we do, we have Trumpians and right-wing Christians and anti-immigrants just jumping on that conversation to applaud us and retweet us into more and more racist uh, audiences. And that's not what we want at all. We just want to, like, nudge the hipster conservatism that goes on in our own communities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's almost impossible. Mm. Yeah, I, I hear you. There are some real challenges i mean with the way and i I like i really appreciate your approach because you know um you you don't go in with with the ex-muslims who go all the way to um total bashing and islamophobia yeah uh, which i think it's important to to avoid and who don't see the double standards there that you've just recently called out in this conversation with um the way that christianity is treated and with the way that christians say we don't want sharia law no, we just want Christian child marriage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just want Christian parents to be able to stone their rebellious yeah. children. <laughs> yeah, and that makes me the most unpopular ex-Muslim that just refuses to follow the path set out for me. I'm it makes you my fa- my favorite ex-Muslim for what it's worth. <laughs> Thank you. Um <laughs> But yeah, you know, I I don't have any book deals or any fancy stage events with uh, people who like to spread race IQ theories. (laughs) So, yeah. Good. I wouldn't like you if you did. (laughs) I know. Me neither. (laughs) I hope you... uh, Are are you... 
thinking about writing a book though? Cause I'm sure you could, you probably could write a book that is not for that crowd. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I've thought about it. I'm more into like writing kids books or like simplifying these conversations and the forms of like illustrations and things like that. So maybe once I do that, get that out of my system, mm. then I might think a, about a, an, a fully adult book with no pictures. but um yeah sorry i uh, sidetracked this conversation entirely what were you talking about you're talking about uh the hipster oh yeah christianity conservatism well yeah so i mean we we got into that um at at a certain point when i was in sixth grade um my dad got a phone call from this pastor named ron clarkson who wanted to start what they call a church plant you know they it was under the umbrella of a big organization called the missionary church but it would be basically it would be within the the missionary church theology but it would be basically non-denominational like they wouldn't put a lot of emphasis on whether people going there come from a missionary church background (laughs) you know it would be about being hip and cool to get the unchurched as a phrase they like to use Uh (laughs) into the church and then play rock music and do cool things with lights and sell them you know toxic theology in a hip and practical that you can apply to your daily life kind of yeah see to me that even even that sounds more progressive than what a lot of mosques are willing to do. I mean, we're starting to get there. There are some sex ed discussions happening, and though I fear what the fuck they they talk about in that, because mm. there's a lot of shame in Muslim sex ed. It's about yeah. shaming people. It's not really sex ed, but at least oh, they're yeah, starting I mean, to utter the word sex. I suppose. I mean, you probably know how prevalent um, abstinence-only sex education is in the United States and how they're pushing the current, you know, the Trump regime is, is pushing for more of it and is directing funding toward, toward that sort of thing. Someone like Trump pushing for abstinence for other people. It's <laughs> you unbelievable. Know, he, um, he doesn't. He knows his base is white evangelicals and yeah. open and open racists. And I mean, so the, the, his most important base is um, conservative Christians, white evangelicals, Mormons, uh, radical traditionalist Catholics. And he's perfectly happy to do what they want. Yeah, it's incredibly hypocritical, but they don't care. Yeah, and he doesn't he, care how blatant he, it is. He's, he's advancing their agenda and... He doesn't care because they like him. So, so yeah, I mean, I had some terrible, terrible, what I would call fake sex ed in in Christian school. In fact, that first half of sixth grade, before we moved to Colorado Springs to join the uh, megachurch-inspired church plant. And by the way, though, speaking of um, megachurches, one of the, I, I suppose you could say, probably the single pastor who did the most to build this movement more than anyone else would be Bill Hybels. And his church was located in a suburb of Chicago uh, called Willow Creek. And there have just been all these big relations about uh, revelations about him, um, you know, involving um, sexual assaults and, you know, various other kinds of, um, you know, hypocritical situations. So that doesn't surprise me at all. You know, the hip cool package 
they they want to sort of be quasi progressive in some ways. I mean, Bill yeah, Hybels, just superficially, but, but they're but, but they're not really. I yeah. mean, Bill Hybels was known for putting women in leadership roles, which is certainly something that you can't do. Yeah, yeah. In 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 many um, Christian denominations, uh, though he was always, I think, you know, pretty authoritarian head of his own church. But some of his lieutenants were women. However, some of them he also, you know, groomed or groped or invited to his hotel room awkwardly when they were traveling together you know um so they're really not progressive at all but yeah. uh, back to back to the fake sex ed so we had this program called cpr for creating positive relationships and um you know how i think it's probably common in, in um in sex ed programs where you have um school children students submit anonymous questions so that they can address them with nobody being embarrassed mm -hmm. but here they decided to embarrass and shame everybody for <laughs> the one question that obviously was going to come up in a christian school environment which was you know how far can you go with your boyfriend or girlfriend so, so first of all the two people who were leading this class shamed the class that we would even want to know the answer to that question because you shouldn't you shouldn't be thinking about how far you can go. You should be thinking about, but if, if there is a line, you want to stay as far back from it as possible. But then they said, but you know, but if you have to have a line, you know, you should definitely stay away from the underwear zone. They <laughs> used the phrase, the underwear zone and defined it as, you know, any part of the body that would typically be covered by underwear. Um, so don't touch any of that. But, you know, in these programs, they also use a lot of rhetoric about, you know, thinking about your future spouse and you already are kind of bonded to the spouse that God has planned for you. So don't cheat on your future spouse by doing anything in a dating relationship with someone that you wouldn't be comfortable doing with someone else's wife or husband. <laughs> yeah, I think because I've if heard you marry that person, then, that then you know, you're taking their purity for whoever does. Marry. <laughs> yeah, I've heard in uh, Islamic context of people thinking that uh, masturbation is adultery, basically. <laughs> well, uh, the Bible actually has a, a phrase. I mean, um, you know, Jesus was trying to, as presented in the Gospels, as represented as calling out the hypocrites of, of his own day. And some of his sayings are, are very harsh. And he's got this one where he says, you've heard it is written, uh, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you have busted after a woman in your heart you've already committed adultery with her in your heart <laughs> so i mean this actually leads to some really weird parsing like i remember some conversations where there was a time i was i was absolutely convinced that masturbation was a sin but you know i was able to have some conversations as i was very you know, freaking out about this growing up uh with people who would say things like well you know it's probably impossible not to masturbate at all but you shouldn't fantasize you shouldn't think about people that you're attracted to, you should just make it purely mechanical and then it's okay. God! Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's so strange. And it's funny because I used to write, uh, you know, specifically about sex and sexuality and in, um, in a Muslim context, specifically Pakistani context. So that's how I started off blogging. And throughout my research, I found that in a way, like in terms of sexuality or masturbation, the, I don't know, like it seemed Islam was a bit better than Christianity in some ways. Like mm -hmm. there were some like um, leaders that would say that, okay, you know, at least masturbation is less of a sin than premarital sex 
or adultery. So if you got to do it, you got to do it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and some people in Christianity also, you know, not not the Catholic Church officially, you know, they have they have one dogmatic line defined for all these things that comes from the magisterium itself, and the vast majority of people who officially adhere to the Catholic Church just throw all that bullshit away and still be Catholic somehow. But, you know... Um, in, in Protestantism, you find a variety of approaches to things like that, yeah. some of which are a little a little better, a little bit more like you described in, in the Muslim world. Um, I mean, it's not yeah, really so great either way. No, definitely, but, definitely not. But yeah. <laughs> it's, um, and and this, this fake sex ed program, CPR, oh, another ridiculous thing that they did was they had like the, these like this heart that was like two halves of a heart that was sort of Velcroed together or something. And they would pull it apart and stick it back together. And they would basically say that, you know, that's like having sex with someone. It bonds you together. And every time you do it though, like the Velcro gets less, oh. vel less, less sticky, less Velcro-y. It might stop, <laughs> it might stop working. Um, and I was horrified to discover, I think about a year ago, I looked online to see if this program is still around and it is still around. And it is in fact present in many central Indiana public schools. What? Yep, that's America for you. Oh my gosh. I mean, we, we're going a bit backwards in my province in Canada because our new premier has uh, canceled the updated sex ed curriculum and it's and he, he wants to go back to an old one that from decades ago, from the 90s or something. It's just, it's so sad. There's like a, a Trumpy wave around the world. I don't know what's happening. I never thought that uh, Ontario would entertain something or someone like him, but clearly. Yeah, I mean, we have to ask how far is it going to go in, in different places? I mean, at least Canada started from a much better starting point than America in, in terms of progressive, inclusive values and a social safety net. But we are in a dangerous moment of uh, right-wing populism, rising yeah. fascism, backlash yeah. against liberalism and so-called globalism and openness that is a global phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I've done professionally as um, a policy analyst is to publish some research looking into the, uh, the right-wing networks internationally that are involved in this sort of thing. Later this month, uh, we have one of the most important annual uh, events coming up for these kind of networks, and it's an organization that has been essentially a Russian-American project since its very inception, and that's the World Congress of Families. And following a pattern from recent years, it's going to be held sort of in Russia's backyard. It's going to be held in Chisinau, Moldova this year. Moldova has a very uh, Trumpy and pro-Putin president nice. right now, Igor Dadon. And um, so, yeah, um, right now, so that organization that passed was headed up by a, uh, a Protestant, Alan Carlson. Um, he has stepped down from leading the World Congress of Families out of the um, Howard Center for Religion and Family Life in Illinois. And... Um, it's now headed by Brian Brown, who also still, who's a Catholic and also still heads the National Organization for Marriage. Wow. And he's been building this bigger advocacy organization around the event, which is a very important networking kind of event uh, where people compare projects, legislative initiatives, talking points. I mean, it's not just they, they get together and hang out and it doesn't change anything, but it's a real vehicle for um, influence and for uh, approaches to try to, to try to oppose 
human rights, particularly for women and LGBT people, Delightful. Uh, can be exchanged. Um, he's building a bigger advocacy organization around it now, which is called the International Organization for the Family. And, Just uh, that he, name alone is so lovely. <laughs> and he's constantly, he's constantly in Moscow. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, before we go deeper into your Russian stuff, let's get back to your your life story, your backstory. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I got, you know, that half a year of fake sex ed, and then we were in Colorado Springs with the, the wannabe megachurch. Um, and there I actually got to go to public school for the second half of sixth grade because in the middle of the year that was kind of the only option where I got real sex ed. And it wasn't maybe like not amazing, but it was completely different. It was very yeah. interesting. How was and that it, experience for you after all that? I mean, I, you know, I had a little bit of a difficult time, I think, fitting in in the public middle school, being kind of weird anyway. But by the end of the year, I wanted to stay in the public school and then they wouldn't let me. My mom was, again, a teacher at a Christian school. These Christian schools also demand that the teachers send their children there. And I mean, unless they're expelled for disciplinary reasons or something, which looks bad for the teacher, uh, you oh, pretty, much, wow. have, pretty like, much have to go there. That's crazy that they demand that they send their kids there. I begged my parents to let me stay in my public middle school. They wouldn't let me. And at that time, too, you know, I was getting real science classes. And I think that I was more or less accepting evolution and trying to find a way to square it with believing in God. But then I was back in Christian school for the rest of my entire schooling. And it took me well into college to because I was trying so hard to hold on to faith. And I'd been told that you have to accept young earth creationism or the whole thing falls apart. Wow. I mean, fundamentalism is always a house of cards. I, I look back at some of the arguments I had with people in college trying to defend young earth creationism with just such embarrassment. <laughs> um, but it was really kind of a matter of, you know, rejecting that was going to possibly send me to hell. And even yeah. though I was in a, in a serious crisis of faith, kind of going back to age 16, but it was very long and protracted for me and, um, and painful. Uh, so it wasn't easy to let go. And, and, you know, also saying, okay, uh, evolution is true is going to have a serious social cost for mm -hmm. me in the communities that I grew up in. Um, and ultimately, you know, it took me from the time I turned 16 till about the time I was almost 35 to yeah. become a very public, um, vocal critic of evangelical subculture. What I was tipped you over? Lots of things. Um, you know, initially when I was 16 and I read, and I was in, in Christian school back in Indianapolis and I read through the entire Bible for the first time, a lot of things bothered me about it, like, you know, divinely ordained genocide in, uh, <laughs> in, in, um, in the conquest of Canaan and all of that, some of those stories, um, the seeming pettiness uh, of God. Um, and just kind of contradictions in the Bible that didn't seem to be able to be resolved. Um, I've told this story before in a number of places, so I'll just kind of go fast through it. But I yeah. went to a pastor uh, who was also a Bible teacher at our school, maybe not exactly at that time, but he was a little bit later. And um, he was also, I think, our pastor at that time. Yeah, he was when I was maybe 16 or 17 with some of these doubts. Um, and he gave me an apologetics book to read. And he seemed very understanding at first. I went home and, and read it. It was not one of the famous ones. I've forgotten what it was. It was in question and answer format. 
I found the, the answers to Glib and I went back and told him that I still had doubts and suddenly he was telling me that the problem was with me, that I was clearly harboring sin in my life, Ugh. that I was opening myself up to demonic influences. Oh he sort of quasi-exorcised me. I tried to smash some things that might be vessels of demonic influence. Like, what? Like, what do you mean like quasi-exorcised you? Like, what did he do? I mean, Protestants don't, like, do the whole crucifix thing and, you know, very specific rituals. They just pray against demons. Okay. They think Jesus gives us all permission to do that. Priesthood of all believers and all that. Um, so it's not like a Catholic exorcism. Uh-huh. <laughs> still scary sounding though oh it is because it is very scary and i mean the whole, whole way that fundamentalism works is to teach you to gaslight yourself and doubt your own doubts right yeah so suddenly you're like i did masturbate the other day or like i can't stop being lustful so i am harboring sin in my life or you're that's just why, a normal that's why i can't read the bible through the holy spirit oh. <laughs> and if i could it would all just make sense and i would see that it's a book with no errors yeah yeah and, and when this is the message from your entire social community, and I, I would say that I grew up in a fundamentalist enclave community, it's not like there were absolutely no ties to the outside world. And I did have access to a lot of reading material that wasn't specifically designed for fundamentalist Christians. I was lucky in that regard. Uh, so I had sort of some windows into this outside world. But for the most part, our social world was church and Christian school. We didn't know anybody else. Yeah. My dad did because of his, he was still doing freelance studio work and he had all these these connections and the music and recording communities but you know um he kind of straddled two worlds but um my mom my sister and me i mean all our friends all our relatives believe the same things and we were told that if you don't believe those same things you'll go to hell so when you finally came out of it and started speaking critically how's your relationship with your family now uh, there were definitely some rough years there. I felt out my dad slowly first on certain things like LGBTQ affirmation, um, misogyny and that sort of thing, um, literalism, just issues with the Bible. And he was a safe person to talk to about those sort of things because he's not fundamentally threatened by difference, which makes him... Uh, really an odd fit for evangelicalism. But he and my mom, they met in, in college through the Christian campus house that they were involved in. And I think they were both just kind of looking for something to provide some solidity um, after the turbulence of the 60s. So they, they joined a bunch of other sort of young men and women of that generation and going cuckoo for culture wars and building up, you know, everything that came next with the Christian schools and the homeschooling movement and, um, and the purity culture movement and so forth. Um, and I think dad just always just kind of went along with a lot of it, even if he didn't internalize everything or agree with everything. I think he always tries to see the best in people and he just, he, he was able to somehow compartmentalize or think that the worst parts of it weren't as pervasive as they are. So I kind of felt him out and he was already more or less, you know, um, he understood where I was coming from and was understanding toward me when I published this piece in 2015 that went viral. It was published on Religion Dispatches, but it got picked up by Salon and Alternate as well, where I was just very harshly critical of conservative evangelicals. And then, yeah, I mean... So this is other, all fairly recent. Yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely, by the time I finished college, I knew I couldn't call myself evangelical anymore. I remember telling that to one of my friends from Christian school who just really did not know how to react and we haven't been close since. So, yeah, I just, I, I kind of kept a lot of it down for a long time, but I was changing 
quite a bit, you know, and um, and learning more things about myself. And I mean, I didn't even recognize queerness in myself until I was in my 30s because it's just it's not a thing that exists for right. fundamentalists, you know. Um, and I think that I was able to do that in part because I, I am attracted to women and I was able to repress that I can also be attracted to men. But then, you know, in my mid thirties, I had a crush on a male friend and I was like, wow, well, this is very interesting. You know, and I got to, got to a place where I could, um, admit to those feelings and process those feelings, which was good. Yeah. So, that, I'm really glad you got out. And <laughs> but yeah, but it took, I mean, it, it just took a long time. And then, yeah, when I published that piece, um, my uh, my mom took it very, very badly. My aunt yelled at me for hurting my mom. My sister yelled at me for hurting my mom. Family members accused me of attacking everything we stand for because that's how they see things, all or nothing. Yeah. You know, but, um, you know, then there were a couple of years of very hard conversations and tensions uh, with my mom in particular, but now we're in a much better place where she can respect my boundaries and... Um, you know, it just, it, it is what it is, and it's in the open, and I'm living with my parents right now and getting along with them, you That's know, good. because I refused to um, become an, a, a poorly paid adjunct with no benefits after teaching at the University of South Florida for three academic years, first as a provost postdoctoral scholar in the uh, social sciences and humanities, and then as a visiting instructor in the honors college, I ran out of temporary but good with benefits uh academic jobs yeah I, mean, I didn't i couldn't get another one at the university of south florida i didn't have anywhere else to go and i was thinking about staying there and adjuncting because i didn't want to move back home um but things were starting to kind of pop and snowball for me in some ways with um the writing that i'm doing and i'm getting some speaking invitations and i really don't want to be an exploited adjunct anyway i mean i just think that these transformations that have happened in the American Academy, where around 80% of college teaching is done by adjunct instructors who don't get benefits, is horrendous. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's bullshit. And, you know, as many of us who can find a way to survive without doing that should should rebel and burn the whole thing down because... PhDs on food stamps should not be a thing. Yeah. So I, I moved back home to focus on my writing and um, public speaking and things for a while and see what I can make out of that. Yeah, I mean, I really hope that it all works out, but I'm glad also that you have this chance to to try your hand at this other stuff as well. So. Thanks. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting more more gigs. I'm getting more traction on on Twitter. That's leading me to possibilities to publish in new outlets. I just published an op-ed in the Moscow Times, and that was work that came to me. I didn't pitch it, you know. Uh-huh. And that's and that's been happening. I mean, that's also how I started and- writing for Playboy. I the work came to me from an editor who had worked with me previously at Religion Dispatches. Also, her her uh, previous editorial resume includes Ms. Magazine, and I just kind of love that she's worked for Ms. and Religion Dispatches uh-huh. and, Play, and Playboy. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, she, she reached out to me uh, because she knew that I could, could write serious, trenchant critique of evangelicals, and they actually wanted to publish that in Playboy. I mean, online only. It's not, you can't go get it in the print edition. But hey, but that's still something. Yeah. So, you know, I'm getting... You actually art- do write articles for Playboy. I mean, I do, I do, but you're not going to... Speak of these them, mythical you articles. You go buy it off, but, off the newsstand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, 
this all all this upbringing and uh, background gives you quite an insight into Trump and his base, and then you have um, academic experience with studying Russia, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you seem to be in a good position to follow what's happening. Um, yeah, I mean, I have got this very weird set of life experience and. Um, academic knowledge and skills that I am now trying to apply in, in other ways. And I can't independently pay the bills that way yet. I mean, without, you know, living rent free with my, with my parents yet. Um, but maybe I, maybe I will be able to, um, my friend Lauren O'Neill and I are working on a co-edited anthology of personal essays by former conservative Christians, people from, uh, evangelical Mormon and Catholic backgrounds uh, it's a very diverse and interesting collection of authors, and that'll be coming out next year. Our deadline to finish it is the end of December. So we have a contract on that with Epiphany Publishers based in Indianapolis. And I'm talking to uh, an agency about working toward my own proposal for my own book, which I have an idea for, and hopefully I'll finish the proposal before too long and get to work on that, and they'll be able to sell it. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, I'm getting pretty steady flow of of work that's so good to hear um so tell me more about uh your insights on trump on bannon on what just happened <laughs> with uh, the new yorker festival to oh, get more God. current such a debacle well yeah i mean briefly you know i grew up in, in the christian right and i think that my survival mechanism with all you know this repression that i had and i've always had um, some some sort of ticks and and symptoms um, since I was a small child where I just I don't I was not a good fit for this authoritarian heteronormative environment you know and I, I think that the way that I dealt with that was by living in my head and even though I couldn't fully figure certain things out about myself I, I could always distance myself from the environment I was in and try to think about it in a bigger abstract perspective or increasingly in light of larger social trends and um, tendencies, the more I was able to read, the more I was able to learn about social phenomena. Um, so I think that's partly what shaped me toward becoming a historian and an academic in general. And what know. interested you in Russia? So my first trip to Russia was in 1999, the year I graduated from Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis, and it was a short-term evangelical mission trip. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so I was in um, the, the hallway after school one day in um, spring of 1999, and the middle, middle school orchestra director came up to me, and I didn't really know him, but it's a K-12 school, so through the faculty meetings and things, he knew my mom, and he had learned from my mom that I'd gone on an educational trip to um, Germany and a few other European countries that the German teacher had arranged. Uh, I was taking German. And um, so he said, I know you're interested in international travel and things like that. So what about coming with me on this mission trip to Russia, which was um, being organized by a Greenwood, Indiana-based missionary organization that was then known as OMS, just by its initials, because even at, at that point, they understood that being called Oriental Missionary Society was not exactly a good idea anymore not exactly yeah. good not exactly good branding they've since rebranded again and now oms stands for one mission society which <laughs> sounds so much cooler uh so 
so yeah, I was recruited for this, um, you know, quote unquote English camp, um, where they would get Russians who were studying English or wanted to study English or, or who had just enrolled in the local, in the Vladimir Oblast um, or province pedagogical university to study foreign language teaching and give them the chance to interact with native speakers in a summer camp environment. Uh, we had to share our testimonies in the awkward way that Protestants do. And um, at the same time, it seemed sort of a little bit ecumenical because there was some involvement with the Orthodox Church that year, and a priest came and led prayer services for the Russian students. But on the other hand, there was this weird sense that we were trying to convert Christians to Christianity, um, <laughs> which was, <laughs> to me, awkward. And the people who had more missionary experience um, did not seem to speak Russian very well, and I was not very impressed by that. Um, you but speak anyway, Russian. At this point, yeah, I mean, I didn't then. Yeah. That was then when I decided to start studying Russian because I made friends and, um, you know, I had learned something about Russia and I just got very interested in it. And it was a much more optimistic time after the end of the Cold War in some ways, you know, and it was before the current Putinist crackdown uh, on human rights mm -hmm. and particularly scapegoating the LGBT community. Um I did go back for a second year to do that same kind of mission trip again with a lot of the same people after my first year of college, but I was already in an intense crisis of faith then, and I wrestled with that, thinking that, you know, as someone who kind of doubts, probably I shouldn't go, but on the other hand, I promised people I would try to come back, and what if it revives my faith? So, you know, I went again. At that point, there was no... Uh, affiliation or interaction with the, with orth the Orthodox Church in any way at all. So it was just purely, you know, Protestants mostly trying to convert um, Orthodox Christians to Christianity. Um, and our English lessons were reading from an English translation of the Bible. So it's not exactly subtle. <laughs> <laughs> Complete bullshit. Amazing. <laughs> but uh, from that experience, I, I started studying Russian. And I saw someone ask you on Twitter, you know, if I might talk about learning Russian. Um, yeah, yeah, that was Gary Brooks. <laughs> it's a difficult language to learn. I would say that it took me probably about nine years, though I wasn't studying it systematically or formally all through that time. But I would say, I, I think over about a nine year period, I became fluent. And um, that included some tutoring, that included uh, some classes. But at my um, undergraduate alma mater, Ball State, after the Cold War, you know, the Russian major fell apart. So I could only take um, a couple years of Russian that was actually at the Indiana Academy, which is a high school for advanced juniors and seniors, a public school, but you have to apply to get in and it's affiliated with Ball State. So I took it there and then on my Ball State transcript, it was just foreign language. So I got two years there. When I was studying abroad in Germany, I took another semester. I took several classes in Russian while I was in Germany. I uh, hired a tutor. Um, and now we have this, uh, you know, <laughs> this uh, Trump administration with all, <laughs> all this Russian influence, and here you are. Yeah, um, so I went and I taught English in Russia for a year between college and grad school, and then in grad school I went to um, study Russian history, and after my first year of grad school I did an intensive Russian language study uh, back in the same city, Vladimir, 
um, where I knew a lot of the people from the, su- the summer camps, you know, where I had taught English. There's a, uh, an institution there known as the American Home that brings in native speakers of American English to teach English to locals. So I did all of that, you know, to really improve my, my Russian and get to a level of fluency over a period of, of years. Uh, and, and yeah, this has, you know, now placed me in this weird position. I mean, I did my PhD in modern Russian history. I studied, um, modern religion, religious thought of the early 20th century. And I'm also now able to see how, you know, Russian Christian critics of Marxism played into Western anti-communism. I'm tracing some mm-hmm. of those historical networks, bringing some of this stuff back to the future, mm-hmm. uh, as it were. Uh, there's a long romance on the, the right in, in the West, um, certainly in Britain and America, uh, but not only, with, um, with conservative Russians. Um, there were even some white nationalists in the mid 20th century who thought that, I mean, they actually, I guess, they, they sort of understood that, that many Russians would more or less be on their side uh, if they weren't contained by Soviet power. Um, and, you know, we had this love affair in America with Solzhenitsyn in the 1970s and the 1980s. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, who, of course, is famous for books like The Gulag Archipelago and One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which is an intense short book that describes a 24-hour period in a gulag prison camp. <clears throat> and now Gad Saad just uses the term gulag <laughs> To refer to SJWs that criticize him slightly. He thinks he's getting dragged off. But here's the thing about Solzhenitsyn. You know, it's, it's important that he exposed the gulag. But that doesn't mean that we uh, should refrain from digging into and criticizing his own ideology at all, which was very anti-Western, which was essentially Slavophile, uh, which was a kind of romantic Christian ideology. Now, he had lost his Soviet citizenship. You know, he was expelled over his dissident activity. So he was held up as a, as a hero and um, someone who uh, was kind of um, a standard bearer for freedom in the, in the West. But he didn't really want freedom. He didn't want atheist authoritarianism either. What he wanted was Christian authoritarianism. Okay. And he went back to, to Russia in his later years when, when Putin was consolidating power. And he died in Russia with Russian citizenship back, very pro-Putin. Um, so you can look at some of the speeches and things that he made in the 80s also, and you can see that this is this should not have surprised anyone. Mm. Um, our right likes Russian Christians because they are really conservative. Our, our, mm-hmm. much, of, much of our right is essentially, you know, fine with authoritarianism as long as it's Christian. It's the atheism that bothered them. Authoritarianism. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay, so let me just ask you a another Twitter question here. Vladimir Alexandrov asks, Christopher, how do you think U.S. and the West in general should counter the Russian disinformation campaign of the last three to four years? Not just right wing, but also some on the political far left are falling for RT, Sputnik, etc. Uh, yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's not an, an easy one to address. 
Uh, it's something that a lot of human rights advocates and policy wonks are thinking about. Uh, sometime back, I was flown into DC to go to Human Rights First uh, for a discussion that was led by Melissa Hooper about precisely how we should address this issue. Um, a lot of the thrust of that discussion was on getting the tech companies like Twitter and Facebook to take this more seriously. And it seems like belatedly, you know, at least Facebook is making a little effort, though I'm still pretty disgusted with, with Facebook. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, we talked about trying to find coalitions with, um, build coalitions with tech leaders, uh, also apps that might be used to detect fake news. Um, or to, to, to call out these sorts of things or trace, you know, the um, migration, I guess you could call it, of Kremlin propaganda talking points against uh, through different media outlets. Um, but I think in the meantime, we also have to just work hard to educate the public uh, about the concerns. I always recommend uh, Marcel von Herpen's book, Putin's Propaganda Machine. It's a very good book. Uh, Malcolm Nance has written about this. I have a lot of articles that, that touch on this issue. Um, and hopefully we have learned some lessons from what happened in 2016, because I don't think the government is going to do anything to really protect our elections from this kind of interference. Uh, coming up now in the midterm elections in 2018, it seems obvious that the Republican-controlled government doesn't want to take seriously an issue that's going to benefit them. But yeah, there is absolutely a problem with what I like to call the pro-Putin left, or uh, what Sarah Kenzier sometimes calls the Polonium Tea Party. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there definitely are these these lefty bros um, who think that you know uh, the whole Russia investigation is ridiculous, and in some cases, even seem to think of of Putin as sort of an ally. I mean, I think for someone like Stephen F. Cohen, who writes for The Nation, he's married to the editor-in-chief of The Nation, um, he's a longtime Russian studies scholar um, who has been called Putin's American toady, I think, not really inaccurately, by Julia Yaffa. You know, mm -hmm. uh, people, like, people like that, people like Glenn Greenwald, mm -hmm. I, I, I think they see... Uh, Russian rhetoric that criticizes uh, globalism or, you know, um, the West, America, American imperialism as something that is, you know, somehow leftists should support even when it's not, not really being used in good faith. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, do we have problems in America with um, imperialism and racism that we should confront? Yes. Do we really want to work with Vladimir Putin on that? No. I don't really think so. You know, um, so unfortunately, they refuse to, to really think critically about this. They're perfectly willing, as, you know, bros always are, whatever ideological coloring you find them in, hashtag not all bros, uh, you know, willing to, to throw women and members of the LGBTQ community under the bus, right? Putin is viciously scapegoating um, queer Russians, and um, they want to say, well, that's not our problem. Um, and, and yeah, so it's really annoying when people who also are otherwise credible uh, do something like let themselves be interviewed on RT. And I think the best way to probably try to counter that is um, simply public back backlash. When we see that, we should criticize it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the social media thing, I, I don't see the companies 
uh, coming together to push these guys off at all. They're not doing as much as they could or should. So, you know, we as, as people who actually want to have a functional civil society have to take matters into our own hands as much as possible. We should be we, we should be really careful with where information is coming from, particularly let's say if it's from a popular anonymous Twitter account, or uh, you know from a new news looking site that may be of dubious provenance. Mm-hmm. You know, know know your sources of information. Yeah. Yep, and I don't think enough people do that. You know, so that's some mm-hmm. good advice. Thanks so much. You bet. So what do you make of this whole uh, campus culture war stuff uh, where (laughs) postmodern neo-Marxism fears come up every two seconds? And what do you you make of all that? I think it's a a great way for uh, certain middle-aged commentators to publish a lot of think pieces that caricature today's students and caricature the left. And, um, you know, it's a great way for contrarians to score rhetorical points. Yeah, and and also, have you heard of uh, Peterson's obsession with communist art in his Mm. home? Like, (laughs) apparently he has massive pieces, like, all over the place. No, I didn't didn't know that. Yeah, and he wants them there because, you know, he wants to be reminded of the horrors. It's just, it's so strange to hate (laughs) something so much, but to have it plastered all over your walls. I mean, perhaps in a certain way, that's, that's sort of a tell that at least viscerally he he sees in communists a mirror image. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> uh, to go all Freudian here, I mean, I just call it like I see it. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> you're just, yeah, you're just, you're just asking questions. No conversations should be off limits. <laughs> Absolutely not, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so what's going on with... Uh, with uh, Trump, his base, with Bannon, what was the New Yorker thinking? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think David Remnick still doesn't think he was wrong because his his whole statement uh, where he indicated that he had disinvited Bannon doesn't show any understanding of why people are actually concerned with the normalization of fascism. Um, I mean, we have this kind of fetishization of, of free speech in our society yeah. and a sort of fundamental misunderstanding of but it's also so hypocritical what the right? free speech means absolutely yeah. because some, someone like Steve Bannon would love to and, and I mean it doesn't it's not hard to find comments on Twitter uh, from people who would love to put liberals and leftists and cultural Marxists and <laughs> you know SJWs in jail right I mean this is not hard to find yeah yeah um, but they claim that it's because they're being silenced Nobody's being silenced. What we're arguing about is, you know, what should the reasonable limits of discourse in civil society be? And I don't care how polite you are. If your fundamental view is that brown people are less human than white people, we should probably start an apocalyptic war with China and or the Islamic world. And um, we should um, deport all the people of color from this country. You don't deserve a prestigious platform. Yeah, to it's strange like that, to me to that this has to be... New Yorker Festival is, is, is dangerous, and David Remnick just doesn't get it. I don't get what there's not to get. Like, how do they... Why did they have to disinvite him? Like, why did they invite <laughs> him in the first place? Like, do they not know who he is? He's not some obscure, random <laughs> Twitter troll. He's 
Steve Bannon. Yeah, his ideology is, is well known. He has published quite a lot himself. We can all his do our research to, like, and read Breitbart if we want to. There are There's video of him. There are interviews with him. You're not going to learn new things about Steve Bannon by interviewing him publicly on a stage and covering his travel and giving him a nice honorarium for that. So David Remnick's excuse for why he did this in the first place is bullshit. And it's just really weird how... Um, you know, the news broke through the New York Times over this holiday weekend with two major funerals going on. Did he want people to not pay attention? I mean, it's 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 weird because Steve Bannon was a headliner, so somehow he was expecting yeah. that this was... But why do you drop that kind of news over a holiday weekend anyway? And then, um, you know, people that he had not consulted, who were also, um, you know, major speakers booked for the festival, started dropping out yeah. and saying they won't share a platform with Steve Bannon. But it which, just to me shows like such cluelessness. Me too. I really, I really don't get it at all. But then I had Morning Joe on this morning and, um, you know, he was just repeating the same clueless line that apparently liberals live in bubbles and don't want to have their views challenged ever when Jesus Christ, my views are fucking challenged all the fucking time. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's living in a fantasy world. Joe but it's Carl. like you wouldn't want... To legitimize an Islamist, I'm surely everyone can understand that. Back, if I, you know, shrink this down to, you know, the microcosm of movement atheism, back like four or five years ago when some British universities were inviting some problematic right-wing uh, Muslim speakers that did have ties with Islamists and stuff, at that time, all these same people that defend this free speech for Nazi shit were all complaining to the universities. Why would you legitimize people like this? Why would you give them a platform? Why would you have them on your radio show? They don't belong on campus. But now the same people have completely changed their tune when it comes to the white right. You know? <laughs> that's ultimately how, how tribalism works. And I mean, for people who think like Steve Bannon or Vladimir Putin, all of this is a zero sum game, you know, so they're, they're, they're not really debating in, in good faith for a seat at the table. I mean, what they, what they want is the power to dominate and they're trying to pretend that they don't. And this should be obvious to everyone, but it's not obvious to David Remnick, Joe Scarborough. You know, not obvious to them. But these are people in high positions and high media positions. That's what worries me. Like, you know, with the New York Times publishing weird, you know, no, oh, the Nazi next door wants to, uh, you know, has a wedding registry with cupcake tins and like a, <laughs> a cherry pie slice tattooed on his arm. He just He's wants just to. just like you. He yeah. just wants to kill all the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, Wall Street Journal published this horrendous horrendous piece about like um uh this writer going to london and being shocked about the multiculturalism there he went like in muslim areas and was surprised to see muslims and <laughs> no go zones <laughs> i just i don't understand what's happening has everyone always been this clueless have i just been super naive that we're getting better in terms of racism obviously i don't believe that now but i used to mm -hmm. like maybe five years ago i'd be like oh come on things have improved a lot and we're just headed towards a progressive direction nothing's gonna hold us back from that now how wrong i was but um, it, yeah, I mean, the right has me. very successfully over the last 40 years or so shifted the Overton window uh, so, so that, you know, today um, things that should be simply moderate or, or normal views are considered super far left and things that, 
you know, are really damaging and destructive to the fabric of democracy itself are suddenly things that Joe Scarborough and, and um, you know, David Remnick think should be included in the New Yorker Festival. Right. And then there's uh, Jack from Twitter who, you know, was just uh, reported on that. Uh, he's uh, went over other uh, Twitter employees to make sure that Alex Jones and Richard Spencer stay on Twitter. Meanwhile, he bans Bishop Talbert Swan, which is absurd. You know, I'm. He I'm publicly really abs- apologized to Candace Owen for Twitter calling her far right. I mean, that's what she absolutely is. Yeah, that's an objective statement. And if you know a prominent, verified black man from his Twitter account cannot criticize a Trump-supporting black woman, that's really, really disturbing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the the story behind that one, but yeah, there's been so many countless stories of that, right? Like, ridiculous things people are being banned for. Meanwhile, Richard mm-hmm. Spencer got reinstated and... <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bishop Bishop Talbert Swan, uh, I think he had in the 70,000s of Twitter followers and sometimes would get into the hundreds of thousands of retweets because he was extremely critical of Trump and Trump supporting white Christians, but occasionally of the Trump supporting black Christians that are out there. And this comes back to the beginning of our discussion about working with progressive believers now. Uh, sometimes, you know, he, he would use rhetoric that would indicate that you know, these Trump-supporting Christians aren't real Christians or aren't good Christians. But, you know, I, I strongly disagree with that. I've registered my disagreement with yeah. that. But but nevertheless, sometimes I'd retweet him. I, I like him. Yeah. You know, he was a good figure in the Twitter resistance. And um, so I've been trying to get this hashtag reinstate Bishop Swan to trend now uh, in, a, in the hopes that maybe... Jack will, um, you know, get enough pressure that he has to let him have his account back. And let me guess, but, none of the free speech, uh, free Milo, free Richard Spencer types <laughs> care about this ban, eh? I sure don't seem to see them caring about <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's the thing. The people that are Candace arguing... Owens, it was Candace Owens who he criticized that got him back. Oh! <laughs> well. And, um, you know, he did use what would be a, a slur if a white person used it, but when a black person... Used, and it's not not the worst. I mean, it's not What's, the end What word. was the word he used? I, I honestly don't know what it, tweet that was, so... It starts with C. Oh, oh, yeah. I would not... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's not, a, that's not a good word at all. It's not... I mean, it's not, uh, my, uh, it's, uh, the second letter is O, not you, if that's No, 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 yes, I know which <laughs> yeah, one you're yeah, talking about, yeah, the yeah. racialized <laughs> one, not the genderized right, right. one. Right, so, you know, I think that he has the right to use that kind of language I don't against, know. against a black person who shills for Trump, but even if he doesn't, for the sake of argument, should he be banned for it? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think he should be banned for it, but yeah, I would really express disapproval at usage of that. There are people who use that kind of uh, language for ex-Muslims too, right? And as mm-hmm. much as I really have come to dislike what a right-wing movement it's become, I really wish that people would make better points instead of referring to these kinds of slurs and things. Um, I think it, it would just make the point stronger if you just didn't use that kind of language. Yeah, I mean, there's, there, there's, I, I can see, I can see both sides there. It's a question that could be argued and debated, but we don't have to litigate it now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We can disagree on that, but um, yeah, the and the people that are complaining about Bannon being deplatformed or whatever, 
at the same time you're seeing the same Trumpy people get so upset at uh, Nike. And it's so silly, too, because... <laughs> Sorry, yeah, it is. I'm laughing at the silliness. Yeah, like, I was away from Twitter for most of the long weekend, so I just, like, dipped my toe in last night, and I'm seeing all these, like, people with Nikes on their barbecues, and I'm at first so confused. What the hell is happening, right? <laughs> what did Nike do? And... They already have your money. Why? What are you doing? You're not harming just, them. These are the same people who smashed Keurig machines. Right, right. <laughs> these are the people who called other people snowflakes. <laughs> yeah, but no, they can't wear Nike shoes now that Colin Kaepernick is the spokesperson for Nike. <laughs> right. I mean, that's all That's all that happened. I was surprised whole, to learn that. whole different conversation to be had about whether, you know, celebrity athlete endorsements should you know, should get so much money or, you know, whether professional athletes should be paid so much. I don't really think that's equitable, but I also think this is ridiculous. And yeah, yeah, that's I really, I, and, and I really support but... Colin Kaepernick in, um, you know, his, his protests and, and starting the whole thing of taking a knee to protest violence against black lives in America is an extremely important uh, move that right. he made, and right. it's and disgusting the way that the Trump administration pressured the NFL exactly. to crack down on it. Exactly, so, that is a real threat to free speech. There, when the government, <laughs> or the president, is getting involved, this is different from some SJW on campus saying that a white guy can't eat a taco. Right? Like as ridiculous <laughs> as that might be. He's I've not never heard anyone pounds. say that, and I've spent a lot of time on college campuses. <laughs> I know, maybe, a, maybe a I have some liberal like, and left-wing students. You know, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I, I'm just uh, caricaturing it and exaggerating a little bit as well. Though there was some taco story, if I remember correctly, but I don't know all the details, so it could have totally <laughs> been some like Daily Wire headline that got stuck in my head. But um, I remember about Bon Me. There was a little bit of an explosion around, you know, this this uh, college cafeteria made Bon Me wrong, and it was appropriation or something. Oh gosh! I mean, there's so many. There's silly leftists too, obviously, right? Just because I'm on the left doesn't mean that I hold all those beliefs, right? If this was a less toxic time, then yes, I would spend some energy in trying to criticize those leftists. Of course, I generally vaguely criticize them now, but I'm not going to be making podcasts about what an injustice it is that they, they said it was cultural appropriation because the bond me was wrong or because they said this guy can't eat a taco or whatever, whatever. There's silly, silly stuff going on. Right. I mean, it, on the level of priorities right now, that's, right. That's, that's super low because we've got to expose this double standard not only applied very effectively by the right, the fascist right now, I would call them, yeah. who are not we're not arguing in good faith. And then the general double standard that we have in civil society because the right has been successful at selling us this snake oil. Oh, yeah. And, and they've, they've taken movements like the atheist movement with them. Like, they totally buy into this whole bullshit where the campus left is the end of the world and let's mm -hmm. make excuses for Trump and let's make sure we're very nice to Trump voters. Otherwise, we're the ones pushing them to the far right. Well, I'm sorry, but that 
that's bullshit. And if you think it works like that, then it can work the other way too. If you're not nice to minorities, if you're not <laughs> nice to feminists, then maybe you're pushing them further to the left. Yeah, and I mean, but that that whole uh, rhetorical approach is abusive. It's just it stop making me hit you on a social scale. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's it is absolute bullshit. Yeah, we're in a we're in troubled times. We're that's for in sure. very strange times. And I also think you know we we want to hold our own accountable and so when yeah. when you when say you know someone who uh, who helped to spearhead the very important me too movement gets accused of sexual yeah. assault we can't be like oh well she gets passed yeah you know uh we sh- we have to um, make sure that we keep our values consistent at the same time we have to realize that today the predominant strain of the right is not doing that at yeah. all oh yeah but that's where where the left is at a disadvantage to begin with because we are trying to be consistent we will criticize our own and that's when they're like oh the left eats its own you know but <laughs> <laughs> yeah because we actually have consistent moral values exactly exactly um, it's called but in terms of and that, the toxic atheist community that insists that it does not exist while all using the same talking points drawn from the same few authors and podcasters, right. but they're obviously not a community. They're um, so not tribal either. <laughs> they're the ones that have transcended uh, the human condition of tribalism. I mean, just <laughs> listen to the leaders. They just say that, no, I'm not tribal. I would know if I was being tribal. However, you, <laughs> you're all tribal. Yeah, I'm totally free of cognitive bias. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not emotionally invested in proving that <laughs> at all. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I know you know this, but I wanted to mention, too, that I have this provocatively titled uh, play on Bertrand Russell, Why I Am Not an Atheist blog post, <laughs> you know, yeah, crit- I believe crit- I've criticizing, read that. criticizing the atheist community, because I do think it's important to do things like that now and again. Now, you know, that's like you know, 1% of my blog and almost all the rest of it is critical of right-wing Christianity. But, but let me guess, you got a lot of hate <laughs> for that one. Oh, yeah. I had several days of intense pushback. <laughs> it was worth it. <laughs> the piece needs to be out there. And now when particularly obnoxious atheist bros show up in my feed, I can just link them to it. Same with when defensive Christians say, hey, not all Christians. Hey, I don't like Trump. Um, I can post my stop calling them fake Christians piece. Because, right, you know, right. you get tired of making the same arguments over and exactly. over. Exactly. <laughs> so you write them into a blog post so you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. And, and in that vein... Your hashtag, empty the pews, like, I feel like two things about it, like, well, three things. It's, firstly, it's fantastic, it's catchy, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's great that you started this up for people to speak about leaving evangelical circles or whatever. And um, secondly, I wish that we could do something like that in the ex-Muslim community, but mm. so many of us are just... Um, They've kind of just allied with the status quo. So it's not really a genuine internal pushback anymore. It's a, you know, we are Mm -hmm. hanging out with the Christian right, the Western right, and we're pushing back with them against Islam. That's not, that's not what we need, I think, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for actual change to come. And then thirdly, I think, I wish we could have something like that for movement atheism, like empty the pews, empty the podcasts. I don't know. Hey, that might work. <laughs> <laughs> empty the Petersons, <laughs> empty the lobster serotonin. <laughs> but Peterson is actually a Christian who hates atheists. It's just so fucking weird that he has been so embraced by this weird movement. 
<laughs> if you hate SJWs and feminists enough, doesn't matter if you can ham. Horseshoe theory. <laughs> yeah, you'll be loved by right-wing movement atheism. Yeah, it is. It is really weird and uh, and troubling. I don't know. Maybe you should try empty the podcast. Um, but I have a podcast, and I'm a- an atheist. So I don't really want could, to. could have broader. Um, I mean, that could possibly go awry. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't want to. I don't want to try that. <laughs> of course, whenever you put a hashtag out in the world, if it really takes off, then people will use it in ways that are not under the control of the person I who know. created it, and in ways that may subvert it. Empty the pews and another of other viral hashtags, some of which I've started that we have in um, the evangelical community. You know, sometimes they they get appropriated by right wing Christians who want to yell at us and push back, which is always kind of fun though because it just it gets the hashtag more attention. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, they can also get subverted in in, in other ways. Um, so with empty the pews, as I originally framed it and I created it, it just kind of came to me as I was riffing in a Twitter thread um, where I was very upset about a year ago in August um, that you know white evangelicals were not criticizing. In some cases, they were even defending Trump's comments on Charlottesville, where he said there are very fine people on both yeah. sides. You know, and um, I mean, Robert Jeffress was pretty soon on TV. He's the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, um, the church whose choir uh, performed that discussing Make America Great quote unquote hymn. Even I don't want to call that a hymn. But the, the Make America Great Again, he made a, he made a church choir song out of it. Um, he was oh, on yes. TV saying saying Trump doesn't have a racist bone in his body. And I was, <laughs> and, um, you know, I was just venting my frustration that you can't get through to white evangelicals at all. They don't listen to any criticism. What would they listen to? What would be a threat to them? And the phrase empty the pews came to me because they are afraid of losing the youth. They are afraid of losing numbers. They're very numbers grubbing. Um, so that's how Empty the Pews was born. It was born as a protest against the, the racism of the Christian right, particularly white evangelicals who, uh, you know, are upholding white supremacy, but for the most part, they will swear that they're not racist, you know, which is gaslighting. Yeah. So that's where it came from. And I, spe- and I asked people to tell their stories of leaving toxic Christianity, regardless of where they ended up, you know, whether they ended up in a healthier form of religion or no religion at all. Um, let's use Empty the Pews to share these stories and, uh, and show people that the bigotry of the Christian right is driving people away from their churches. Um, and from there, you know, we got we got a lot of interesting stories, and it became kind of a standby protest hashtag now, or hashtag that's used to expose abuses uh, in religion, Christianity in particular. Um, and where sometimes I get a little bit annoyed with the way people use it is when some people from the atheist community use it in a very explicitly anti-religious way. When yes, it's radical, it's a it's radical phrasing, but I originally wanted it to be a little bit more like a combative way. You mean like? Inclusive. Well, like where they just they, they use it to try to, you know, express views against religion entirely. I'm not that annoyed with it. I'm only slightly annoyed with it. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I mean, if you actually ask me, I will admit that, yes, I think certainly at this point in um, humanity's development, organized religion does more harm than good. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think it creates problems that don't need to exist without it. But I also don't think it's going away tomorrow. And I'm not going to insist that people have to give it up in order to Yeah, there's a way that it happens, like, organically. And there's a way to be unhelpfully combative 
And right. And so I don't like when people, I don't exactly like when people use empty the pews that way, but I also am not like really, I'm not so upset about it that I would write a blog post. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's been good. It's been great to see. I've even seen some religious people like share the hashtag and stuff. So it's been interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's what I hoped would, would happen. So I'm really glad to see that um, people, many people who do still identify as some kind of Christian um, or Wiccans or people who have gone into just like spiritual or not and not religious or Buddhist or whatever, that they use it too. Um, because I want this to be a hashtag that is really specifically focused on the kind of Christianity that is the problem yeah. in, in this country. And that's, you know, it really isn't all the Christianity in this country. It pretty much you could say it is white Christianity writ large. But of course, there are many progressive white Christians as well. And then there's the whole African-American liberation theology tradition. Um, so, you know, why, uh, if they're not going to be defensive about it, which some people initially were, um, then why go out of my way to alienate progressive believers who will fight for the same causes? Right, right. I, I, I can understand that. I mean... Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of religion in general, but I'm also a fan of being strategic and how to communicate that and not just necessarily, not just being a douchebag mm -hmm. to people. Yeah, and to me, I mean, I, this is probably a step further than you would go, but I also just, I, I really want to tell people that they have their, their own moral autonomy and if they get out of, you know, toxic white supremacist patriarchal Christianity and they still find a version of Jesus that they like and identify with and they're, they don't want to give up Christianity altogether, I'm going to tell them that that's okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, I cringe that's, that's, that's at a, that. That's, 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 that's a valid choice for them to right. make. Right. No, I cringe at that, but I totally understand that as well because it is ridiculous and unrealistic to expect everyone to just drop everything, their social networks and every connection they've made, everything they've learned since they've been children. It's just, it's unrealistic. And this is uh, this conversation that happens a lot in ex-Muslim circles is like, can we reform Islam or should we just eradicate it? And I find that so horrible a, a conversation to have, especially right now in the era mm. of Trump and Bannon and Muslim bans and Breitbart. Mm. And, and they go to, some of them go to Breitbart or rebel media to have these conversations. Like, write articles about how Islam has no place on the planet anymore. Like, obviously, if you're going to the right to say this shit, they're going to love you for that and not for the right yep. reasons. Once they can get Islam eradicated, their next target will be you. Yeah, uh, and I mean, Breitbart loves, absolutely loves to publish people like that because it gives them cover. Yeah, um, Th that was even in the Milo... Uh, the Milo BuzzFeed piece. They love to say, we publish Jews, we publish yeah. gay people, we publish trans people. So, uh, you know, the people who, who play into that. This is the I'm, era I'm, I'm, of I'm really, I'm really disgusted with them. It is. It's very disgusting. And, and, and that's so what, and, you know, calling, calling that out is what got Bishop Talbert Swan banned from Twitter. And that's why I'm very upset about that. Yeah. Yeah. I just wish he hadn't used the word. But, yeah. I think tokenism sure. is, a, is, a, is a better word to describe the phenomenon in general. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't carry that racial baggage. As far, mm -hmm. Some people might say it does, but I don't think so. This is a real thing that's happening. There's anti-trans trans people that are becoming very popular, anti-Muslim Muslims. There's even a fucking 
anti-Muslim alt-right imam. I don't know if you've heard, the, heard of this guy. I think I, I think I might have seen the Twitter account. I think you might have sent it to me, but remind me who he is. His name is Imam Al-Tawhidi, Imam of Peace. He is fucking ridiculous. He oh, praises yeah, I've seen that account. white nationalists. He goes on white nationalist podcasts. He, also, Sam Harris tweeted a praise for him. He's um, like a Sasha Baron Cohen character, you know, I've heard of people say. And um, it's just, he's so obviously stupid. He's so obviously not genuine. How can you have an imam that bashes the Quran, that says it's barbaric, that says most people practice a violent version of Islam? And how can you buy that he's legit? If you do, that means you are so blinded by your hatred and biases mm -hmm. that you're not thinking clearly. Yeah. But this is the strange times we live in. <laughs> so they are. Yeah. Right, well, on that note, uh -huh. did you want to plug anything or send people anywhere to find your work? Oh, sure. Um, I have a blog called Not Your Mission Field, which is hosted at chrisstroop.com. Um, there's also a resources page there for people who have come out of toxic Christianity. Um, it has resources for those who have become completely secular as well as for those who have stayed within religion. Um, even a couple listed that I really disagree with their approach and I don't endorse them. But, you know, maybe if you have people in your life who are absolutely not ready to abandon basically fundamentalist views, but you want to find resources for them so that they can get out of, say, a, a situation of marital rape or physical abuse, I have those kinds of resources there where people will frame that argument in a totally conservative Christian way. Um, and, yeah, you can find my writing in a number of different places. A lot of it I have done for religion dispatches. More recently, I've been writing fairly regularly for Playboy. I just published an op-ed in the Moscow Times, and um, it's easy to find me on Twitter. I'm at C underscore Stroop. Excellent. So everyone give him a follow, and uh, yeah, thanks so much for being on, Chris. Thank you, Ina. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon, patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal, nicemangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. Thank you.